there are many attributes about God that we find in Scripture. Three of the most repeated and reiterated are God is good, God is able, and God is faithful. Through his goodness, he shows his ability to bring people to repentance. He is then faithful to his word that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. However, in our society today, the amount of self-glorification and deifying of man is rampant. Unfortunately, I'm not talking about the secular world or its worldview. I am talking about how this practice has entered the visible church. Today, we'll be discussing a few ways it has entered, what popular teachings are supporting this perspective, and what a biblical response to the issue we are facing. So, as always, grab a Bible, a pen for some notes, and sit back and relax as The Great Sift starts right now. Welcome to The Great Sift Podcast. Through weekly installments, we provide content that will engage, encourage, and empower you as a believer in Jesus Christ. We tackle topics of the day, host interviews, and provide a biblical view on what is happening in the church and the world at large. So, grab a Bible, open your heart, and let's begin to sift through all that God has in store. When I make a definitive statement such as, Narcissism has entered the evangelical church, many people are taken aback and a a little shocked or perplexed. You see, some say, You are just now noticing? While others may even say, Chris, you're being judgmental and need to have more grace on people. Well, whatever your response is to my statement, give me just a few minutes here to help you see what I mean and how biblically we can apply truth to our context of living in our present day. Let me, be, let me first begin by defining narcissism. See, narcissism is defined as an excessive interest in or admiration of one self. Selfishness, a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, and a need for admiration. If you look at our society, this can be identified all around us, can it not? However, we should not be surprised when those who have not placed their faith in Jesus act like this. Narcissistic behavior is sinful, it's selfish, and it's full of arrogance. It often stems from a counteracting of fear and insecurity. You see, a need for admiration, which brings a sense of validation for any given individual. When that validation gets continually fed, it can become the monster of narcissism. One thing that psychologists can tell us about narcissists is their ability to have a false sense of piety or humility. Some you can see right through, while others are deceptive and very believable. Now, in American evangelicalism, we have, for many years now, been subject to the deception of narcissism. Not in every single situation, not in every single denomination, not in every single church. But in recent years, it is only getting stronger. After many conversations with believers from across our nation, sit-down, in-depth discussion with pastors, and observations observations with our ever-increasing, self-gratifying culture, especially with educational content coming into seven to nine-second segments that we find on Instagram Reels or TikToks, there are two main ways I believe that this deception has entered the American church. These are not the only ways, but the two I will mention today. Number one is this. 
believers are willing to agree with something that sounds biblical or sounds moral or sounds like it follows their traditions without comparing it to scripture. For example, you'll have people that do Instagram reels or TikToks or um, maybe even longer than just seven to nine seconds. Maybe they'll even be a minute long and they'll mention good moral things. They'll say certain uh, definitive statements about God. And because we as believers, we tend to go, oh, that person's talking about God. They must love God. They must know the Bible. We can get into this mindset that we take on and embrace things without actually comparing it to Scripture. And this can get us in trouble. Why? Because then we start to become dependent upon somebody who's giving us a moral objective without even seeing if it's clearly defined in Scripture that that objective is true. Within the past six months or so, I've also had conversations with some younger Christians, some people who've come to the faith recently, and they've been a little confused as to why preachers or pastors will say certain lines. And as I kind of compiled through them, this was kind of the overall example that came to the surface. So here's here's an example for you um, that reiterates this first Um, reason why I believe uh, narcissism and arrogance and selfishness is creeping its way into American evangelicalism. Have you ever heard the preacher say, I'm going to read through this passage of scripture real quick so I can give you what the Lord told me? I'm going to say that again. Have you ever heard this said from any church pulpit? Okay, because these these young believers are, are, are like, wait a minute, Scripture is God's word. Why would a preacher say this? And so here's here's the line again, okay? I'm going the preacher will say, I'm going to read through this passage of scripture real quick so I can give you what the Lord told me. Have you ever heard that? You know what? Unfortunately, and I've repented for it, <laughs> I've even said that. I, standing in a pulpit, I've even wanted to hurry along. I found myself wanting to hurry along a reading of scripture in order for what I felt led to share. And and so just check this out. So um, what the Lord told us is found in the very scripture tons of preachers, including me being guilty of this, have done, where we're trying to hurry through Um, the scripture in order to, you know, quote unquote, not bore the listener. So the question then becomes, why is that a bad thing? Why is that dangerous? Well, the scripture itself is what speaks the truth. And yes, as a pastor and a preacher, we are to explain what the context of scripture is saying to help people have a better understanding of where to, or where they can grow in Christ, things that are going to help uh, solidify their faith, bring sanctification, allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. However, why this becomes so dangerous is because sometimes, and what we're seeing in America is there is, is a growing dependence upon the man of God rather than the word of God. And that's a fine balance for pra- for pastors and preachers to walk. But what we're seeing is this continual need for profound godly thinkers or pastors, and people are growing a dependence upon them 
rather than upon Scripture and the Word of God. The second way that the deception has entered the American church is in conjunction with the first. Believers are not reading their Bibles, at least not consistently. I'm not trying to bring any type of condemnation um, or, or any type of judgment upon anybody, but think about it. If this was true, the problem of narcissism would not be as strong as it is, in, as it is within the visible church. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. If people are actually reading the Bible, like we should, like all of us should, more of the teachings that I'm about to address would not be as prevalent or popular. Why? Because people would know that they are being lied to. And therefore, they would walk away from it. At least I'm prayerful that that is what would and does happen when people open and read to find out the truth. So again, two ways the deception of narcissism has entered the church is, is, um, is this. Number one, the willingness of people to agree with something that sounds biblical rather than just comparing it to scripture. Secondly, Simply not reading or being challenged to read the Bible to know if what you are being taught is wrong. All right, now that, now that we can see, at least in part, how the deception is allowed to take root, let us examine a few teachings that breed this behavior. Note, I will be doing a more thorough examination of these overarching teachings in the coming weeks. So if you have questions or contentions with what I say here today, you can by all means leave a comment or you can um, direct message me and we can continue to have further conversations. But no, I will be clarifying um, in detail uh, my position and my thoughts biblically standing uh, with some of these teachings. First is this, the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, or simply put, the word of faith movement. Let me be clear, there are different levels and offshoots of this teaching. I'm not saying that anyone who has believed this teaching isn't saved. However, we can see when compared to scripture that this teaching does not align and we should examine the effects that it has on believers. All right, so I'm going to give the overarching view of what a health and wealth prosperity gospel teaching is. In case you don't know what it is, or maybe um, you're disagreeing with me already and you want to turn off the podcast, please don't. Stick with me. I've, I've got something to share with you, okay? The main idea and premise is that a believer, that as a believer, you are given not just salvation, but you have access to divine health and wealth. This idea is a mishandling of scripture, which we will break down in a completely different episode. But regardless if you agree with this teaching or not, it is this teaching that has caused many to believe that God is like a rolling bank account or ATM that you have to figure out the access code to. This teaching has made people believe that they are believers, that believers, all believers are on par with Jesus and always meant to be blessed financially. And if you aren't, then you simply don't have enough faith. This teaching speaks to two main desires of humans, money slash provision and health to live a great life. Those desires are not sinful, 
But when manipulated by a teaching that does not align with scripture, they can become sinful. A certain preacher that is pivotal in this movement has been quoted in meetings, shouting and making his audience do the same. And the statement that he says, and this was a while ago whenever he was doing this, but it says, money cometh to me now. Think about that. A preacher standing in a pulpit, screaming and having everybody in the audience do the same. Money cometh to me now. This teaching breeds, at the core, a greed in people to desire more for themselves and feel entitled to it because the preacher said so. This person in particular. Selfishness and entitlement are two characteristics that define narcissism. People who fall into this temptation are not inerrantly narcissistic. But over time, not receiving admonishment from the Bible, they can be deceived into the very thing that they don't want to be. I don't want anybody, I'm sorry, I don't believe anyone wants to be selfish or wants to be narcissistic. <laughs> Yet we can be entangled easily if we don't grow in understanding God's word. So at this point, some of you may have turned me off. But if you've stuck with me this long, let me show you a couple of passages in scripture about money slash provision and our health and what our response should be as believers in Christ. The words of Agur, penned by King Solomon and recorded in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. I'm going to be in Proverbs 30, and I'm also going to be in Matthew 6. So Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9 says this. This is a prayer that King Solomon penned from a man named Agur. Two things I've asked of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This prayer unto God is a great example of how we should approach provision for our lives in Christ. Think about verse 8. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want to be super rich and I don't want to be poor, <laughs> is what he's saying. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full, meaning so wealthy and so so abundant and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Who is God? I did this, right? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I don't want to be poor to where I, I get so hungry that I have to steal and lie and, and, and be sinful unto God. Now, in conjunction with that, think of the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter six, verses nine through 13. It says this, pray then like this. This is Jesus speaking. The disciples have just asked him, how do we pray? Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wait. Did you notice it? Verse 11. Give us this day 
our daily bread. We are to ask daily for provision and believe that he will provide as we work with the gifts and the abilities that he has given us. In America, the land of abundance, it's easy to go off course and think that God is just supposed to give us divine provision that is so abundantly over anything we could think, ask, or imagine. But in actuality, Jesus teaches us to ask for not just forgiveness of our sins, forgive our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And another version, it says, forgive us our sins as we, have, as we forgive those who have sinned against us. But it's also saying in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. It's a daily prayer of saying, thank you, Lord. And Jesus, will you, God, will you give me the provision that I need for this day? For we don't even know what tomorrow holds today has enough worries of its own. So as we look at that verse and we see those things, he gives us the gifts and the abilities to work as he provides unto us the opportunities to do so. Now we're going to be in Philippians chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. The words of the apostle Paul writes one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, but I want you to notice the verse right before or one of the verses right before the main verse that everybody can quote, or a lot of people can. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Verse 13, the most famous one that tons of people can quote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reason he can do all things has nothing to do with his financial portfolio or his health, but rather it is because he has become content in knowing it is Christ who gives him strength. You see, when we put scripture in proper perspective, we find the peace that we are longing for in our lives. Along with that peace, selfishness decreases. A slant towards narcissism dissipates, and true humility begins to grow. Now, for the sake of time, I will leave the balance of the health side of the teaching for another episode. The second teaching, um, or the second type of teaching that I want to share with you, um, is a, a term called eisegesis. This is where a person inserts one's own idea into a scripture to make it mean something that it doesn't. Now, people can do this um, with when they're just reading the Bible on their own. Preachers can do it whenever they're up in a pulpit. Uh, evangelists, anybody can do it because it's very subtle. And if you've never really thought about it, then maybe you're even finding yourself doing it in your own study time. But we see this happen um, oftentimes in, in a lot of churches across America because it makes uh, it, the messages more relatable. Let me explain. 
sometimes you'll hear uh, messages be titled, and I used to be really big into titles. Um, the very first message I ever preached, and I'm kind of uh, not ashamed to say this, but uh, embarrassed, I guess you could say. The very first title I ever preached was um, Save the Drama for Your Mama and Push. And it was just this idea that I had, and, and I liked the, the, the title, and I used to be the catchy title guy. Um, I'm not anymore, but anyway. Uh, so, uh, but there's titles out there that, that preachers have preached like, and these are all generic. I'm not thinking of any one person, but it's, you know, be the giant killer God created you to be, or desire to be a Daniel (laughs) or even the wrestling match of the century. And all of these are formed. And again, it's subtle. And I I think even that there's sometimes that preachers out there don't realize what they're doing. There's people who are studying the Bible that don't realize what they're doing, and it's called eisegesis. Again, it's where one or a person inserts one's own idea into a scripture to make it mean something that it doesn't. Now, I'm going to take a moment here, and I want to sincerely um, repent just for a moment. I've asked God a long time ago for forgiveness. Um, And I've asked certain people close to me for forgiveness as well. And if you were ever underneath my leadership and I did what I'm about to describe, I sincerely ask of your forgiveness. Um, I oftentimes didn't even realize that I was doing it. And I didn't always do this whenever I was preaching, but I am guilty and I long to correct my error. So let me explain. Uh, We're going to take the title that I just made up. It's generic, like I said, Wrestling Match of the Century. Now, I made up this generic title Um, and I'm going to use, uh, observations and as well as things that maybe I've, I've done in the past from, um, messages and, and I'm just kind of compiling them here. So bear with me as I kind of paint the picture, right? The sermon would utilize the passage of scripture out of Genesis 32, 22 through 32. I'm going to read that here in just a moment. The main points though, that I want you to think about as I'm, as I'm reading this passage, the main points would explain that just as Jacob wrestled with an angel, you too have to wrestle with God in order to get what you want. Or in order to know your direction, you have to wrestle with God. Now, maybe a preacher would preach that God is changing your name too, symbolically, of course, but you will no longer be the identity of your past, but rather the reality of your future. Maybe even you would be told, just like Jacob, you too can see God face to face and live, but you will be branded with a spiritual limp. Oh, that'll preach. That'll preach. That'll make somebody jump up out their chair and yell amen. (laughs) But now let's read the passage and see if these ideas that I've heard preached um, or have just kind of thought that that would be preached, again, it's a generalization, is what the text is actually saying or is it eisegesis? Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32 says this. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man then said, 
Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob, I'm sorry, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob, Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So the question is, can any of the main points that I referenced before reading the passage be extracted and taught as true Christian doctrine from the text? Are we instructed to wrestle with God? Are we promised that he will change our name? Are we told that we will see God face to face? The answer is no. This is a historical narrative and an incredible one at that. It is an amazing story of how God is setting up the foundation of his people that leads us to the line of Judah, that gives us King David, that ultimately leads to Christ. Jesus is the one who is to be preached through this passage. Without the historical context to understand the significance of where Jesus came from, our faith would be limited. Yet, having the full context of Scripture, we can see how everything points to Jesus. We are not to insert ourselves into a Scripture in the way that a lot of people do or that I even used to. You see, in the short term, it makes us feel seen, important, encouraged, and inspired. But in the long run, those feelings run thin and can create a sense of entitlement, selfishness, and ultimately, if we allow it to get there, a narcissistic mentality to believe that Christianity is all about the individual, not about God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, holy, majestic, amazing. The love he has for his creation permeates through scripture and the teaching Yet, sometimes we sell it short, well, actually, we always sell it short when we make it about us. So what should our response be? How do we begin to combat the selfishness we see in the American church? Let me give you three ways to start. Number one, read the Bible. <laughs> read your Bible. Get to know the Lord through his word. Don't interject your ideas. Just read Believe what it says. The word is our objective standard of truth. Number two, share with others about the truth you read. Not quarreling, avoid fruitless debates, but rather respond in love. Be genuine in your response. Number three, stay humble. Pray for humility. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, Paul is admonishing and encouraging believers in this, in this passage. This is not merely descriptive 
This is not a historical narrative or just for Ephesus. This is for all believers. This is prescriptive, not just descriptive. I'll read it again. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to you and me. Please hear my heart. If you've stayed with me until now, (laughs) I am not attempting to discredit or hurt anyone. I am simply seeing something in the visible church and longing for believers to truly take a look at what is happening. I'm asking that you pray and ask God for wisdom in what you listen to. Be willing to be like the Bereans in the New Testament and not simply accept things without comparing it to Scripture. Our commitments to... I'm so sorry, let me say that again. Our commitment to God's Word is paramount in walking in the Spirit throughout our lives. I'm going to say that one more time. Our commitment to God's Word is paramount in walking in the Spirit throughout our lives. If you found this episode helpful please consider sharing or leaving a comment or a review. If you have personal questions, you can feel free to email me at thegreatsift at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening. Take care and may our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you always.